baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Time to rewind. It's the Chris and Amy Rewind Recap. Uh, We're having a nice snowy morning. Well, now it's into the afternoon with Nate Gatter in for Amy Marks Cores. I'm Chris Ranji. It is the Chris and Amy Show, 10 to 1 every day here on KMOX, except for the weekends. We like to have weekends around here. So we did uh, start the show, Nate, talking about the Supreme Court decision. Well, we talked about the snow. It is snowing. Be careful out there. It, uh, if you're texting the show, do what our last texter did and use Siri or voice to text. Do not look down at the phone and type in your message to us. It's yeah, very, he, very he has been cleared of the uh, texting while driving charges. Yeah, we, we I charged him with texting while driving. I had to rescind those charges. 314-436-7900 if you want to uh, join in the show. But we talked about the Supreme Court decision in Michigan the state Supreme Court decided to not do what the Colorado Supreme Court did, and that was take uh, former President Trump off the primary ballot. So as of right now, the only state that has said he cannot appear on their ballot is Colorado. Michigan, Arizona, New Hampshire, Minnesota have denied efforts to, to take him off the ballot, and the only state left is Oregon. So... And it's a little bit of a different legal question that they're dealing with here. And I, we kind of went over the legality of it. I am not an attorney. I'm not close to being an attorney. I don't know if what Colorado did is the right thing, legally speaking. What I do know is that there are a lot of people who know what they're talking about, who are on both ends of this and aren't quite sure. So it's it's all about the interpretation of the 14th Amendment, Section 3. And a lot of people see it very differently. And certainly politics plays at least a role in how you view some things. But I don't know what's going to come of that. What I'm concerned about, if you want to call it concerned, is what the political ramifications of this are. We know former President Trump is going to use this to campaign on it to say, look, and he's already doing it. He's saying they can't beat me. They know they can't beat me, so they're trying to take me off the ballot. And that's the only way they can beat me. And I I don't I I I I don't have a strong feeling on this because I really truly don't know which way to go on it. I feel like we have laws, and if the laws are what we've decided to live by in this country, we have decided that hey, if you participate in an insurrection. If you participate in trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power, you don't get to be a president. You don't get to be a senator. You don't get to be in the House of Representatives. And I know exceptions were made after the Civil War, but this is different. I think we should live by that. But also, I do have a little bit of concern of of how it looks. But I'm wondering, should I care how it looks? 
should it, should should it, you care how it looks at, on an individual optics, level, I, or should if I, you were a judge, should you care? No, no, no. I, I mean, well, I don't mean from the judge's perspective. I just mean from a strictly political perspective. Should I care what the optics are? Should I care that it looks like his political opponents don't want him to run and they're doing everything they can to get him off the ballot? Because, first of all, I don't agree that they can't beat him. They've beaten him a lot. Yeah, I was going to say he, that. He's, lo- he's lost in midterms. Like, his his side is lost in midterms. He has lost the popular vote twice already. He lost the last electoral vote. So it's not like he is uh, undefeated, and it's not like he is unbeatable, because he clearly is. So I don't agree with him on any of that stuff. But That rationale is a little bit rich coming from somebody who, you know, the idea that they can't beat me and so they're looking for an end around is a little tough to take from a guy who lost an election and then I, looked for an end around. Yeah, I well, I mean, I agree with you, but I don't know. I, I just, I waver on how I feel about this. I think that, you know, we talked about this before. Uh, the The important distinction, especially with respect to the Michigan decision, is that there's not necessarily, there might be, but there is not at this point necessarily disagreement per se between the Michigan Supreme Court and the Colorado Supreme Court. They're focusing on different They're issues. different things. And yep. one, of the, one of the confusing things here is that ultimately, yes, the, the underlying or overlying substantive question is how do you interpret Section 3 of the 14th Amendment relative to what happened on January 6th? Right. Do you consider what happened to be an insurrection? And if so, did Trump participate in it sufficiently to be considered an insurrectionist who would fall under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? The Colorado Supreme Court said yes, but there essentially there has to be a hook to get you to that point. One of the things that you talk about in the if you learn the law is getting is a hook that's going to get you there. And Colorado, or in this case, it's almost like a doorway that gets you to that issue. You have to get from the state law to the federal question. And what what the Colorado Supreme Court did was rely on a Colorado election law that essentially says you a candidate has to be able to show they are legally qualified, essentially eligible to hold the position for which they're running. And they said, therefore, we can we can examine whether or not Trump would be legally qualified to be president, even though that's not really the question yet when he's going on the primary ballot. The Michigan Supreme Court said we have no analogous state election law. And so at this point, all we're deciding is whether he can be on the primary ballot and the election commission does not have the power to keep him from being on the primary ballot. So they have not ruled one way or the other. They have not expressly disagreed with the Colorado Supreme Court. They didn't even advance to any formal consideration of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and how it does or doesn't impact the eligibility of Trump to become president again. I I just think that's key to note that there isn't necessarily disagreement at this point. That doesn't mean there won't be. And to your point, actually, we didn't touch on this before. To your point about the politics at play, that's something that we talk about a lot at the U.S. Supreme Court, something that's discussed, especially with respect to Chief Justice Roberts, often because he's seen as a traditionalist and an institutionalist who views his role as chief justice as to protect the court and preserve its credibility in the public eye, something that has been undermined by the public perceiving this massive politicization of the court in recent years, and that he might try to find a middle ground, similarly to how he did with the uh, ACA decision some years ago when, when he was key in upholding Obamacare. And that would be something like saying Trump is not immune because one of the defenses Trump is going to use is that he was immune from this in some way because he was president at the time, that he's not immune, but that he doesn't fall under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment because it wasn't an insurrection. Something like that, that would be a nominal win for the liberals, but would still ultimately preserve his eligibility to run again. 
the big picture perspective is that everyone in the United States benefits from immigration, that we're in a situation in our country where we need immigrant labor more than ever. We have an aging baby boomer population. We need people to care for our baby boomers, et cetera. And we don't have an immigration system that supports the needs of the economy. So overall, everyone in the United States of America should be interested in, the, in immigration, but from the perspective of how can we improve our legal immigration system to support our needs. That is Kate Lincoln Goldfinch, immigration attorney in Texas uh, with Lincoln Goldfinch Law. We're talking about uh, what's happening at the southern border, which is something that, uh, that that a lot of people are concerned about. And there there should be concern. Um, her perspective is that and, and I agree with her, at least on this, that we we do need immigrants in this country. I know there are people who don't think we do, but we do. And, and the reason we need them is, is is multifaceted. First of all, they do enter our workforce, and we do need labor. I think anybody who has been to, in the last three years, it, it, it has not been highlighted any better than it has been in the last three years. If you have been to a hotel, if you have been to a restaurant, if you have been to a, a lot of places, farms even, that, that they need labor. They need people to work. And a lot of times that's what immigrants do. They end up working those jobs that a an American does not work, does not want to work, and won't do it, right? So we need that. We need the system be, to be streamlined because what ends up happening is they know they're not going to get in through the process because it takes forever if they ever get noticed. So then they try to come in through a different place instead of the port of entry. And so that absolutely has to be rectified, but I'm not sure there's enough appetite in Congress to actually work on a real solution here. I think it I think there are people who just want to use it for a a political football, which is what it's become. I will say, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the benefit of the Odyssey app where you can uh, listen to us streaming live for free. You can also rewind and go back and listen to other segments. I thought uh, that interview with Kate Lincoln Goldfinch was uh, was very informative and she brought an interesting perspective. Obviously, oh, she's she out has of Texas her, too. She's right. she's down there. She, Obviously, she has her particular border. lens that she, for, through which she views the situation. Sure. You might or might not agree with her, but I, I thought she brought a lot of worthwhile on the ground perspective that uh, is would be worth revisiting if you missed it. Senator Bill Eichel, who's also running for governor, is one of them that wants to get rid of the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education altogether, wants no oversight over the schools in Missouri because he believes that it's not doing schools any good. So there's going to be that conversation. I have a feeling not only that, but they want to allow open enrollment, meaning that if you live maybe in Jefferson City, if you want to go to a school maybe an hour outside or even 30 minutes up in Columbia, you can go to school there. It doesn't matter about your zip code. I also expect that to be a big, big conversation this year. A lot of people talking about school and, and school choice that is a, a a very important issue for a lot of people. That was Emily Manley, uh, Chief Capital Bureau reporter for Fox 2. I would highly recommend going back, listening to that interview. We covered a lot of what will be um, in the what we believe will be part of the legislative agenda, which is a week from today, uh, January 3rd, is when the session starts in the state of Missouri, runs to May 17th. That's when the, the session comes to an end. And as she mentioned, it's a an election year. So who knows how much is actually going to get done? 
but it will definitely be volatile. I'm sure of that. So anything you missed, it's on the Odyssey app. Go back and get it. A-U-D-A-C-Y. You can listen back. You can rewind. If you think you heard something, you want to you wanna catch it, uh, go back and I think it's like 15 seconds. You can, you can go back and listen. Also, the podcast of the show, when the show is over, you can listen to those as well. Odyssey, free, KMOX.com, free. We're also broadcasting live on 98.7 FM. It's not, uh, can't hear it everywhere in St. Louis, but give it a try. See wherever you are. Um, 1120 AM, of course. And usually we are streaming live on Facebook Live and on YouTube. Uh, That system is not working for us today, and I'm not sure we're going to get it running this week. But usually YouTube and Facebook as well. Nate Gadder is in for Amy Marks Cores. I'm Chris Ranji on KMOX. You're not going to believe it, Nate Gadder. Guess what is the least safe city in the country uh, over the holidays? Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. I know what you're going to say. What? St. Louis. No, Sacramento, California. What? No, it's, it's actually ah, St. Louis. Ah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, that's really, uh, of course. Um, I hate this. I hate that we are doing this. I hate that we are talking about this. And I, I honestly could have uh, just said, you know, we're not going to talk about this today. But I think it's worth noting Anyway, that yeah, I do um, want to talk a little bit about this survey that we're basing it on. Absolutely. So uh, this was from a security firm, um, and also we'll just let's start here. Google Trends and numbers from the FBI's National Incident Based Reporting System (NIBRS) ranked the most unsafe cities in the United States during the holidays. But if I'm reading this correctly, mm-hmm. they did so on the basis of volume of property crime, right? Which is not unimportant, but I, uh, is it also including, is that one of other things? Uh, and it's also including violent crime? Because I, I got to say, if, if we're talking about the least safe, I think property crimes should probably be in a different category from and I would agree violent with you. crimes against people. I would agree with you on that. And that's that, that to me is part of... Um, the discussion here, but let me just give you what the results were. It was St. Louis, number one, and then Newark, Delaware, Salt Lake City, Denver, Seattle, uh, two cities in Vermont, Burlington and Rutland, Atlanta, Minneapolis, and Portland. Those were the top 10. I'm wondering, I mean, it seems crazy they would be wrong on this, but I'm wondering if what they meant is Newark, New Jersey, right? Because Newark, New Jersey has a reputation for being somewhat unsafe. Newark, Delaware is a home, is, is, houses 30,000 people. I mean, it's part of the, it's like a Philadelphia suburb. It's where the University of Delaware is. It's not even, it's like a a Wilmington, Delaware suburb. That just doesn't seem like a place where there's a ton of crime going on. I mean, I I guess I could be wrong. I don't know how many people are going to Newark, Delaware. It's just not. For any reason ever. uh, Uh, Unless you're going to the University of Delaware. I don't know why else you would be there. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe there's a lot of crime at the University of Delaware. But um, according to the Newsweek article, the research methods cited in the report used Google Trends search data, 
measuring keyword searches related to holiday security from November 22nd to January 23rd, and Airbnb listings available from the 23rd of November to January 2024 to evaluate the property's security features. So we're talking about people who are looking for a place to stay. They're searching for certain neighborhoods, and um, these are the results that, that come up. But I think the, the 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 bigger issue here is, and we have problems here. I'm not going to deny that. I am fully aware of the issues St. Louis has. I happen to think our biggest problem in terms of if you're a visitor, you're coming here from somewhere else. I happen to think our biggest problem is the town is just desolate. And I don't mean all of St. Louis, but I'm talking the centerpiece of your city. And the centerpiece of any city is the downtown area. That's where any city is judged. It's the downtown area, always, in any city, with the exception of maybe New Orleans, because Bourbon Street is what everybody thinks about when they think about New Orleans and the French Quarter. That's kind of the heart of the city. But otherwise, when you come to any town, you're looking at the downtown. And if you walk around in the middle of the day and you're looking for something to do and you see nothing, you see nothing open, and you're actually surprised when you see a restaurant operating at any given time, that is the problem to me. I, and, and that probably begets crime a little bit. You know, that that probably leads to some actual crime. But I also think that this town gets a, a rap that's worse than what it really is. I, I think I that happens that. routinely. You know, we've talked about this. I agree with that. I also, I just, you know, maybe this is wrong because you're not supposed to, in the face of objective data to however it's gathered, uh, you know, and we are not privy to the details of how they gather this and how they assembled it. Yeah. You're not supposed to, in the in the face of that, rely on anecdotal evidence, which would be, you know, in our case, our own experiences in St. Louis, or even worse, our perceptions of places that we have never or rarely been. But I just, I don't know that this top 10 is a laundry list of the places that people throw out there when they think of the most dangerous places in America, right? If you want to talk about homicide rate and things, normally you hear about Detroit, you hear about Memphis alongside St. Louis. Maybe you hear about Milwaukee sometimes. You don't normally hear about Salt Lake City. You don't normally no, hear that's, about that's one Burlington you don't hear about. and Rutland, Vermont. What are they doing on this list? I don't know. I, 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 does, I mean, do you, would you feel remotely unsafe going to Burlington, Vermont? I don't know anything about it. Maybe it's bad. It's not. I've been I don't there. know. I mean, it, maybe they've got, uh, maybe they have uh, uh, gangs of, of militias that, just fire on crowds all the time. All I, no, I can think of is that both of those places, of both of those places and Newark, Delaware have quite small populations. And since this is a relatively small sample size in the sense that the time frame is short, I think this would just be looking at the last two or maybe three months to, to try to give you some perception of the quote unquote holiday season. Maybe it's just capturing such a small period of time that if cities like Newark, Delaware have a slight spike in crime that it, it really pops in the data because they're, you know, you're putting it as a rate of the pop compared to the population and they only have 30,000 people. Rutland, Vermont probably has fewer than that. So let me give you some good news. You ever heard of flexcation? Uh, I have not. I have not either. But it is the idea of mixing work 
with a little bit of holiday time off. Oh, so people are doing that, yeah, during the pandemic. People yeah. who had flexibility in their jobs. I think it's kind of a weird vibe. I would feel weird about, like, going somewhere and paying for a hotel and then still working 9 to 5 remotely during that time. But some people were into it. So according to Coworking Cafe, which I've never heard of, um, they say it's a resource for information on co-working spaces. And they take, here are the metrics they take into account. Um, leisure spots. The offerings that a city has of leisure spots, entertainment, restaurants, prices, um, also co-working spaces available for the times needed during the holiday. St. Louis has a lot of those. St. Louis was 10 out of uh, all the cities in the country. Pretty good. So, so well, who is number? Uh, let's hear some other ones on the list to get an idea of if this is a list you really want to be on. Number one for flexcation in the country, Fort Lauderdale. Okay, pretty good. Greenville, South Carolina came in second. Not bad. Spring, Texas. Don't know. Miami, Florida. Okay. And there's a theme with, with most of these. Boca Raton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Atlanta. Wilmington, which I guess is Delaware. Yep. Orlando. Santa Monica. And then St. Louis. So That's pretty good. Eight out of ten of them are, well, I guess, St. Louis is included in that too, except we have a winter. But um, this winter was not... A winter. It was yeah. Until mostly today. warm weather cities. Yeah, mostly warm weather. If I were going to hey, flexcation, I think I'd be more likely to do it in Florida than we, St. Louis. But I'm happy to be on the list. We got stuff going for us. I'm trying to tell me we don't have stuff. We we're the number ten city in the country for flexcation, baby. Yeah, have some of that let's, FBI study. Let's go. Nate Gatter in for Amy. I'm Chris Ranji on KMOX. This is the Chris and Amy show on KMOX. Nate Gadder is in for Amy Marks Cores. I'm Chris Ranji. And if you have an Apple Watch or have not purchased the newest Apple Watch, you may not be able to, but actually you may be able to um, because there's been a development today. And we will talk about that uh, with our next guest on the Quiver River Electric guest line. It is Ian Scher, tech contributor for CBS News, and Ian is with us on KMOX. Good afternoon, Ian. How are you doing? Oh, doing okay. So apparently um, Apple was accused of stealing uh, knowledge or something, and then they took the Apple Watch off the <laughs> shelves, but there has been a reprieve of some kind here in the last hour. Yes, so this is somewhat annoyingly nuanced, but what happened was that Apple in the last couple of years released a new feature on their iPhone, uh, sorry, on their Apple Watches. Uh, that would be the Apple Watch 9 and the Apple Watch Ultra 2 that is able to read the oxygen in your blood, right? It's a pulse oximeter. And what's interesting about it is that apparently a company called Massimo, which is based, by the way, in California as well, uh, invented a similar technology, or they would argue the same technology, for uh, a lot of the hospitals you go into. If you end up in an emergency room or an urgent care and they put one of those on your finger, right, and it lights up your finger, that technology apparently is patented and there's not really anyone else who's been able to make it work well. So when Apple came out with theirs, which uses similar technology, uh, Massimo sued, saying you stole our technology. And not only that, you stole, you know, you hired some of our employees away and they took trade secrets with them and you never got a license for the patent. And now you need to pay up or lose access to this technology. 
And Apple fought them and lost. And what has happened is that there is a court that is in the United States under President Biden that decides when you have violated a patent, whether or not you're allowed to import stuff that's been made into the United States. And the court decided that Apple cannot import new Apple watches into the United States because of this patent license. And just today, a federal appeals court essentially said, no, it's okay. You can sell them for now. But we're going to see whether or not during appeal, Apple might lose and we might not be able to buy Apple watches again. It's all very interesting. Of course, part of the reason is that Apple is such a massive company and seeing them not be able to sell something is rather surprising. Yeah. And and Apple watches are the most popular smartwatch. I see them all the time. Yes. Not only that, uh, Apple watches outsell the entire Swiss watch industry combined. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not just that this is a popular device. It's not just that it's by an American company. It is that this is a industry leading device. And Massimo, who's, by the way, I've spoken to their lawyers, I've spoken to some of the people there. One of the things that they they say consistently is just because Apple is this massive company worth billions and billions and billions of dollars does not make it okay for them to steal technology. And so Massimo uh, argues, and and remember, the, the judges essentially agreed that Apple needs to be held accountable over this. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out, because Typically, the president can step in and say, it's OK, we're going to let the imports happen anyway. But this time they did. The, the president did not. His last day to do that was actually on the 25th. Right? That was his, his Christmas present to Massimo or maybe the coal for, for Apple was not stopping that ban. And so now it's winding its way through the legal process, which is just so fascinating. Yeah. So with that in mind, Ian, could you tell us sort of where we are in this legal process? This stuff obviously can be a little bit confusing since it's sort of caught up in that federal circuit sort of separate appellate court that otherwise maybe doesn't generate a lot of headlines dealing with these sort of patent issues. So where are we now in terms of them having stayed this this restriction, stayed this ban? What's the next step in the legal process as they continue to fight this out? Well, it seems as though Apple is going to try and appeal. And by the way, it's worth noting Throughout all of this, as is typically with any patent lawsuits, there are actually multiple lawsuits happening, right? The, I, the one at the International Trade Commission, which even though it's called the International Trade Commission, it's an American system, um, that, you know, that one was just about banning imports. There are other cases that are involving stuff like questioning the patents and trying to basically invalidate them and see if we can get this lawsuit handled. So as this process is going through, it's going to be very interesting to see whether Apple is able to successfully argue, no, our technology is different enough that it is not stealing from Massimo's patent, or if Massimo is able to argue correctly, and then the question becomes, will Apple pay them or will Apple have to create new technology for this or remove it from their Apple Watches altogether. And it's worth noting, Apple stopped sales of the Apple Watch before this order this week because they knew that it's possible they could they would not be supported by the Biden administration. And sure enough, they, they may have to actually change the Apple Watches to deal with this whole problem. Ian, to what extent can the federal circuit staying this ban be interpreted as an indication that the judges think on the merits Apple is or isn't likely to succeed? To what degree is it just sort of a a temporary procedural measure and doesn't have a whole lot to do with how an appellate court might ultimately rule on this on the merits? 
in my experience with a lot of these things, and I, you know, I, I remember the whole Apple Samsung drama. I remember Apple Microsoft. Uh, you know, one of the things that happens oftentimes is that courts will say, okay, well, there is this order, but we're going to put it on pause. We're going to stay the order because we're still sorting things out. And so it seems like a very procedural, normal thing. It's also worth noting, especially when you're dealing with courts outside the United States, it's actually very standard for them to make a sweeping judgment, but then put it on hold as they're dealing with appeals. So in a lot of ways, this is normal. It is unusual, though, because it's not very often that this little court called the ITC, right, the International Trade Commission, finds its way into the headlines because it is not a normal court, right? It's not part of the normal judicial process. It's only about banning the import of products from sale because of patent issues. Visiting with Ian Scher, tech contributor for CBS News. He's with us on KMOX. Let me ask you about um, Microsoft and OpenAI, which is an artificial intelligence company, and the New York Times is suing them. Yes. It is actually really fascinating. So I have been watching this AI stuff for a very long time. And one of the conversations we've seen come up again and again and again is this sense that AIs were trained, right? They, they basically learned how to work by, in, by putting in a ton of data that was not legally allowed. So, for example, Getty Images who, you know, do most of the most of the news photography on the Internet. If you look, uh, they have a special watermark that they put on all of their images. Well, they were able to prove that some of the image generation apps out there, right, like Dolly and Midjourney and some of these others that have become very popular because you type in a sentence like, you know, a unicorn taking, uh, uh, you know, taking a, 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 a flight into whatever, right? that you can have it create this image, they were able to prove that it was actually using data from Getty to create these images. And so they sued saying, well, you didn't get a license. You didn't use this stuff, right? Just like people who stole music 20 years ago and shared it with the world, you can't just take our images without paying us and then use it to create these AIs. New York Times now is doing the exact same thing. They actually showed in a story just a couple of days ago that they were able to actually have the AI repeat back emails of people from the New York Times that have been stolen from the web pages. So they could prove that the, that the AI actually had that information in it. And the only way they got that was by stealing from the New York Times. So now we're going to see, will the New York Times be able to prove enough that Microsoft and OpenAI and all these people have to pay them essentially for the content that they use to create these AIs in the first place. Artificial intelligence, Ian, I think um, of all the technologies in my lifetime, that's the one that is probably the most concerning. I think we, you know, as societies go on, we tend to be nervous about each new technology. You know, it was, yeah, I mean, like it's, it's not a big deal. This one, it feels different though. And so I well, it, part of part of it is because you hear Arnold Schwarzenegger's voice in the background all the right. time, right? That's right. And then you yeah. know, and that's that's part of it too, absolutely. But there is this other element of it. And by the way, the experts all agree we're not even close to that, right? Uh, and we're we're having those conversations now, which makes me feel good about it. But the thing is, 
that I am curious about the impacts on the economy, because those are going to be way bigger right. and quicker than the Arnold Schwarzenegger issue. And so the, the key question is, as the media industry is falling apart, and I don't know if you've been keeping track, more than 20,000 media jobs have disappeared this year. number of publications have had to lay off their staff, including, by the way, I went through a layoff this year, too. And, I, and part of what's really fascinating is that all of these AI companies are worth billions and billions of dollars, and they're using the data that these media companies created to create their AIs, but they're not paying them for it. And so, of course, there's a conversation that needs to happen. How do you uh, compensate people correctly for stuff they created that now is the backbone of these new technologies? So I, I, clearly the, the concern is, um, from my perspective, the people who are in charge of creating artificial intelligence and moving it forward and progressing it, I don't trust them enough to put up uh, to, to self-govern. I just don't because I, I, yeah. I think they just want to see how far they can push anything. There's, there's well, never... and, and part of that is capitalism, too, right? Like sure. Google started rushing out their AIs against the internal wishes of their own developers because Microsoft had put out their AI and ChatGPT was getting very popular. And so even even Google, who initially was very careful about putting that stuff out there, has felt the pressure to do it. And that is part of what's concerning people is it's not even an issue so much of self-governance, although that is very important, it's that competition is forcing them to act irresponsibly. Mm-hmm. And and when the one thing I'll bring up is that, at least on the safety issue, the uh, Biden administration, you know, Congress hasn't done anything, right? It's like the least productive Congress in the last, in the in the history of this country. Was in this modern year. history but, it is, but, yep. Right. So, but the one thing, the Biden administration actually wrote an executive order using a thing called the Defense Production Act, which, you know, is a law that we created for war so that we made sure that we had enough, like, tires for airplanes and stuff. But now what they did is they said AI is a national security issue. And under the law, AI companies above a certain size have to disclose to the government what they're building, what they're learning, what's going on, how it's going bad, when they're struggling, and all of this stuff as a national security issue. And so I think that that is at least going to help to make sure that the safety issue is handled. But I keep coming back to the economy issue, right? Because as much as the government might be able to protect us from the potential of Skynet or whatever, there's this larger thing that people love using AIs. They're fun to work with. I've been playing with it for a long time. And so if, if, if we are not going to find ways for people to be correctly compensated for creating the technology, then what happens, right? What happens eventually to places like these massive media companies that otherwise are losing money, but for some reason their data is so important, the AI, AI industry has to steal it to be able to create the AI. That, that's part of what I keep, it's just fascinating. So I, this is where I was going to take it and uh, we'll, we'll leave it here. But this question is, if you have, is it going to be legislation that ends up putting the guardrails on artificial intelligence or will it be a continual string of lawsuits like this New York Times lawsuit or is it a combination? It is, it's likely going to have to be a combination, right? And, and part of that will be because AI is touching so many different parts of life. Uh, the one last thing I'll bring up is that one of the godfathers of AI, his name's Jeffrey Hinton, Hinton he went yeah, on 60 yeah, yeah. Minutes, right? And he talked about how he thinks we're going to create within, within a few years an, an artificial intelligence that's as intelligent as us human beings. 
And what does that mean for philosophy, for who a person is, what is thought, all these questions? That is not something that can be solved with a simple law that by was, any stretch. That, that's what he said, right? That that he yes. thinks we are closer to that and that it is smarter right now than we think it is. Yes. And, and there, there's a lot of argument for that being true. And part of what I think is, again, this is why I feel better about this than like the people who ended up in, you know, in, in the Terminator is that we are talking about this stuff right now and they were not talking about it. Right. They did not worry about it the way we are. And I think just the fact that we're having these conversations is going to help to make sure that we're safe. No, nah, man, I'm, I'm certain that I will be uh, standing by the playground uh, shouting at everybody <laughs> to go home. And then the, the bomb drops and I'm holding on to the chain not. linked fence and then I'm just bones. That'll be me. See Terminator I, 2. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, yes. No, I, I hope I hope that does not come to pass for sure. <laughs> Ian Share, talk to you soon. Thank you. Absolutely. Tech contributor for CBS News, Ian Sherry, is full of fantastic information, and he says right now you do not have to worry about Skynet. Nate Gatter, Chris Ranji, uh, you know what's coming up soon? Hancock and Kelly, they're coming up at 1 o'clock here on KMOX. Hey, and telling how people can listen to KMOX in various ways, you continue to diss those of us who have HD radios. KMOX is available on 1025HD2. I'm sorry. I no, love that. I love that call. It, 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 he's right. Can I be honest with you? I either didn't know that or I forgot about it. But we are on 102.5 HD2. So if you have an HD radio in your car, you can listen to us there. 98.7 FM. If it doesn't come in well, 1120 AM. But the Odyssey app is always reliable. The Odyssey app, you can listen. Sounds perfect. And, uh, you, you know, Bluetooth, your car, whatever, you, you can listen to us that way. I love also that he, that wasn't just, hey, for your information, yeah, you might not have an us. HD radio and you're forgetting us. He said, you're dissing us. He dissing. took that personally. Yeah. And you know what, Chris, in this day they and age, in this time, with, uh, with how people from time to time diss radio as an entire medium, you know, we need people like that who's, who stick up for, uh, for their particular type of radio. So we should be thankful for, uh, for somebody who would, uh, who would take dissing of HD radio personally. I agree with you. In fact, in fact, um, I'm going to stick up for AM for a moment. You've probably heard the PSAs that run on this station and mm-hmm. a lot of other stations because there are electric vehicles, electric vehicle manufacturers that are slowly, if not already, eliminating AM from the cars. They say it interferes with the technology, whatever. But there is a push in Congress. Um, Ed Markey out of Connecticut, I believe, he's he's leading this. And he wants to make sure that car manufacturers cannot take AM out of cars because in an, in an emergency, a lot of times... That's the last form of communication. A lot of things go down. Cell towers go down. Cell service goes down. Wi-Fi can go down. But an AM radio, if you need an, a, an emergency alert and it needs to get to you, AM is sometimes the last uh, form of doing that. So you can, by the way, text AM to 52886. If you text the, the letters AM to 52886, Tell Congress to make sure that happens. Yeah, 
Now, people it's, sometimes it's very don't, valuable. People sometimes don't think, you know, in, in any in a national event, emergency, we we don't think about, you know, you don't think about your insurance until you need your until insurance, you need it. right? AM radio is sort of a, a insurance for some sort of emergency, crisis, weather, disaster, humanitarian disaster, whatever it might be. So uh, I, I do think it has has some value, and I think anybody who concerns themselves with uh, eventualities and trying to be prepared for things. Would uh, would think about that, and Senator Markey. It seems that he's from Massachusetts. By Massachusetts. the way, I just double checked, but yeah, yeah. close enough. Close. Well, well, Connecticut's right there, isn't yeah. it? And all New England isn't. Conne- okay, so uh, I'm always fuzzy on that part of the map. It's Connecticut North, New York. No, no, wait, no, no, wait. Take that back. Boston. This is how we're finishing the show. Boston, Massachusetts is above Connecticut. That's correct. Then Connecticut, then New York. Yes, right. Well, New York is sort of west of both of them. That's what I meant. Yeah. Hey, I studied the map when I was in grade school. I did pretty well on the map test. I think I got a 50 out of 50. Good Are job. You impressed? I'm really bad at math, though. How many of the state capitals could you do at the time? Was that a thing? Did you ever memorize oh, all yeah, 50? We had, yeah, we had to do all that, too. How many do you think you could name now? Oh, six. You really? You think that's it? I don't know, man. I, uh, I don't know. It's just a ballpark. Let's I'm start not going to test Cal- you. Let's start with California. <laughs> Let's work our way east. You could, first segment with Hancock and Kelly. You guys can do state capitals. Yeah, that's right. Hancock and Kelly coming up at 1 o'clock. I'm going to sit in with them. Anything you missed on the Odyssey app, A-U-D-A-C-Y. Download it, KMOX.com. Nate Gatter is back with me, Chris Ranji, tomorrow at 10 o'clock here on KMOX. That's what I said. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.